Good morning. My name is Zach Ellsworth, and I'm the youth pastor here at Prairie View Christian Church. For those of you who are visiting or uh, maybe haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, um, it's my joy and privilege to preach to you this morning, uh, to worship with you gathered here on a Sunday. Um, it's truly an honor as we continue in our series this October on the topic of the Protestant Reformation. Um, it might feel like we've been hearing a lot about that over the past couple weeks, and that's on purpose because that is our series, and it's because this is the 500th uh, year, the 500th anniversary of the event that catalyzed or uh, the event that accelerated, or some would even say the event that began the Reformation on October 31st. 1517, Martin Luther, who we just heard about, who we have been hearing about and will likely continue to hear about, uh, a monk and a controversial figure in his own right, uh, he nailed the disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences, better known as the 95 Theses, to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And I'm, I'm not a, a historian. I've prepared a sermon this morning, not a lecture, and it's possible, maybe even likely, that you are tired of hearing Martin Luther this, Martin Luther that. And there are other important figures in the Reformation, uh, but for this series, we have kind of focused in on Martin Luther as the uh, figurehead of that. And if that's you, if you are here this morning and you are tired of hearing about Martin Luther then you are in luck because I should not mention him again for the rest of my sermon. But the Reformation is important. And out of the Reformation came five central doctrines, five core beliefs of Protestant Christianity, these five markers that distinguish us as the Protestant church from Roman Catholicism. And these are known as the five solas. And it just so happens that 500 years after the Reformation began, we have five weeks in October, one Sunday morning sermon for each of the five solas. And so far we have covered sola fide, which is faith alone. We have covered sola gratia, which is grace alone. And this morning we will be considering solus Christus, which is Christ alone. And uh, if you've been wondering why these phrases seem so showy, so, I don't know, pretentious even, um, it'll be helpful to point out that these are not merely the words of religious eggheads like Ben and myself, if I can even consider myself a, an egghead, um, trying to sound smart and important. They are relics of a time when Latin was something of a universal language, similar to how we might use the word etc. or IE and, and an abbreviation. We still use Latin to this day. That is what is happening here. But anyways, again, this morning I will be preaching on the doctrine of solus Christus, which is Christ alone. But before I go any further, uh, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I come here and stand with your word prepared to preach. And uh, if I do this on my own strength... Um, I will fall on my face. We, this will fall flat, and it will be no good, and we will have wasted these 30 minutes. Um, so, God, I ask that you would be near to us with your spirit, not in the sense that we all have your spirit as Christians, but in the sense that your spirit is the gift that bears witness to Jesus Christ, that he would give life to these words, that he'd give life in our hearts, that we would be moved and shaped not by whatever speaking skills I might have or whatever study I might have done, but by your Holy Spirit working in our hearts in a supernatural way. God, I ask that you would attend to us this morning. Thank you for the people that have gathered here and, and cho chosen to worship here at Prairie View this Sunday morning, um, to sing songs to you, to take communion together. 
to offer prayers and praise to you. Thank you so much for your word. I ask that you would be with us all in the preceding moments or in the following moments as I preach this morning that you'd be honored. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. So last Sunday, Ben briefly mentioned a phenomenon within American Christianity known as moralistic therapeutic deism. And that may sound like a mouthful, but it's pretty easily understood when you break it down into its three parts. It's moralistic, which means here's how you do good. It's therapeutic, which means here's how you feel good. And it's deism, which means God is out there or he's up there, but he's not particularly involved or interested with what's going on down here. One author who has looked into this phenomenon, especially the way it's infiltrated youth culture, describes it this way. She says, moralistic therapeutic deism has little to do with God or a sense of divine mission in the world. It offers comfort, bolsters self-esteem, helps solve problems, and facilitates interpersonal relationships by encouraging people to do good, feel good, and keep God at arm's length. Its thrust is personal happiness and helping people treat each other nicely. Now, you've probably gathered from the way I've spoken about moralistic therapeutic deism, the way Ben brought it up, and the thing I just read, that I don't particularly like it. In fact, it probably is not a stretch to say that MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, has left much of the American church in need of a a new or a modern reformation. However, MTD isn't completely bankrupt. Like any good fiction, there is enough truth in in there to make it believable. Christianity does offer morals. Christianity does offer comfort. And at times, it can feel like God is far away and that he is not near to us. But Christianity worships a God who is near to us. Emmanuel, God with us, is not the God of deism. The one true God came and lived among us as one of us. And that is what we will be talking about in a bit this morning. But the biggest error of MTD, of moralistic therapeutic deism, or arguably the biggest error, is that it puts man, it puts woman, it puts the individual at the center of the universe. Adherents of moralistic therapeutic deism focus on themselves. They spend all of their time staring at their own belly buttons. But Christianity lifts our eyes to the creator of the universe who holds everything in his hands. But as I said, there is comfort in Christianity. And I hope to encourage you all this morning to make you feel good. I want to avoid the errors of moralistic therapeutic deism to be sure. But a good, solid, biblical Christianity offers comfort. It can make you feel good. And one extremely common way that people attempt to feel good about themselves, is by comparing themselves with someone else. Someone whose mistakes are greater, someone who is less successful, right? A bar that's set 10 feet high can be hard to clear, but if we lower that bar, maybe a little, maybe just a few feet, maybe you're a a pole vaulter and you can get over it, or maybe you need it dropped a lot where you can just kind of maybe get a high leg over that bar. But if we take that high bar and we just lower it, to a place where we can easily clear it, we can convince ourselves to feel good about what we've done. And one of the examples that's often used of the absurdity of this is Hitler, right? Hitler is sometimes used as a bar for wickedness just to show how ridiculous this is. If Hitler is the bar, if he is the standard for a bad person, 
then everyone can easily step over it and nobody is bad. But we, we know that's not right. We know that's not true, that there are bad people in the world who might not be as bad as Hitler. And typically when this message, this idea is delivered, the point is not to encourage you, the, the listeners. The point is not to make you feel good about yourself. The point is to show you the error in your ways, your self-righteousness, and to convict you and convince you to change. But this morning, if you will bear with me, I'm going to compare us all to an individual in the Bible in an attempt to encourage you. So if you've seen the bulletin this morning, you know we are in Luke 23, starting in verse 32 and looking down through verse 43. We are not going to read that all right now. We will look at it um, in full in a little bit. But as it goes, I, I would like to just kind of explain what's happening here. So as you're turning to Luke 23, starting in verse 32, and it will help if my Bible is open to that. There we go. This passage in the Gospel of Luke gives an account of what transpired, what took place, or some of what took place as Jesus Christ hung on the cross. They had gone to a hill just outside the city of Jerusalem to a place called the Skull. We do not ever call this hill, rarely maybe, referred to this hill that Jesus was crucified on as the Skull. Sometimes it's referred to as Golgotha, but most often it's referred to as Calvary, and uncoincidentally, both of those words, Golgotha and Calvary, roughly translate to mean the skull. So at Calvary, our Lord was crucified with two other men. Some traditions give the men names, but the Bible gives them none. All we are told is that they were criminals, robbers. So exactly what kind of men were these crucified thieves? The best anybody can offer is educated, albeit well-educated speculation, an educated guess. And among such guesses, a case is made that these two thieves were not petty thieves, but violent robbers, bandits like we find in the story of the Good Samaritan. These men weren't pickpockets. They were beating people to the point of death, then taking their belongings. But like I said, this is just one interpretation. This is just one way of looking at it. Another view advanced about these two men is Comparing them to Barabbas. Barabbas, if you are familiar with the crucifixion story, and if you even look back just a few verses, you will find his name. If you are unfamiliar with Barabbas, he is infamous for being released by the Romans in, in the place of Jesus. The, uh, there was apparently a custom for the Romans to release a criminal at the time of Passover, and this being the time of Passover, Pilate put Barabbas and Jesus in front of the people and, and the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders had worked the crowd up into a frenzy to demand Barabbas be released and Christ be crucified. Now, Barabbas was guilty of insurrection, rebellion against Rome, which was a crime punishable by crucifixion. Not only that, Barabbas had at some point murdered somebody during one of these uprisings, one of these rebellions that he had started in the city. This is the description we are given of Barabbas in the Gospels of Mark and Luke. Barabbas was a revolutionary, a rebel against the Romans, and the Gospel of Matthew refers to him as a notorious prisoner. If you look at the book of John, the book of John refers to Barabbas as a robber. The original Greek word, and I, I struggle to reference the Greek sometimes, um, 
but the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the ESV or the NIV or the CSV or the KJV or whatever translation you are looking at, all of the other English translations are just that. They are translations. And while it is possible, absolutely possible, to study the Bible and understand it in English, certain things just get lost in translation. If you have spent any time working between any two languages, you understand this. And so things that might jump out in the Greek just don't have the same effect in English. And I'm, I'm far from a Greek scholar. I have a very limited understanding of it, enough to know how to Google the right things. But the word used in the book of John calling Barabbas a robber is the same word used in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark to describe the thieves at Calvary. And outside of the Bible, that Greek word was often used to describe rebels and insurrectionists. And so I hope I haven't lost you by going to the Greek. If I did, this is a great time to jump back in. My point has been to paint a picture of the two men crucified with Christ. Whether they were rebels or thieves, we know, right, the impression left by a more careful look at the language of the Bible stresses that these were violent men. Again, referencing the Greek, Luke literally refers to them as evildoers. The word there is evildoers, workers of evil, that we read as criminals. And what's more, we have an admission of guilt from the men, a recognition that the punishment fits the crime. These workers of evil are getting their just desserts. These are not the type of men you would leave your kids with. You'd be hard-pressed to entrust anything to these two individuals. Granted, there may be a handful of individuals here at Prairie View that you wouldn't leave your kids with, but that has nothing to do with their character or some moral shortcomings. See, when you consider the people we gather with week in and week out, the people we meet on Sunday mornings, on Sunday nights, on weeknights, and worship with, when you consider your own face that you see in the mirror, I can guarantee you are better in almost every single way than these two violent robbers crucified next to Jesus. You will almost certainly never face execution by the state for crimes of violence. The death penalty will probably never be considered a just reward for your actions. You are, by all accounts, the salt of the earth. And I can say with almost absolute certainty that there is no one in this building this morning who would not clear the bar set by these two men. But let's turn our attention now to the text itself, and we will go ahead and read these 12 verses this morning. So if you would follow along with me in verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This morning, as we consider the text I've chosen, I've set before us, and the comparison I've drawn between us and the two wicked men crucified alongside Jesus, I believe the truth of Christ alone will shine through like light and darkness, that it will be unmistakable. But what do I mean as I stand here and preach Christ alone? Christ alone, what? The five solas, like I mentioned, are from the Latin, sola being Latin for only or alone or singularly. And the five solas are the fundamentals, as we've mentioned over and over, of Protestant Christianity. It's extremely difficult to say that any one of them is more important or or more essential than any of the others. If you take any single one of them away, you're left with something entirely different. However, Solus Christus can be situated at the center. It can be thought of something like a heart. A heart has four chambers, and the four chambers of the heart are grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, and glory to God alone working and pumping the blood of Christ alone through the body to give it life. You cannot take any of it away, but it's Christ that gives life. It's Christ that gives energy because it's Christ that is the gift of grace. Christ is the object of our faith. Christ is the word made flesh. All scripture points to him. And Christ is the ultimate expression, the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God and God's plan to glorify himself and himself alone. So like I said, Christ alone is situated at the center of the five solas. Well, all that is good and well, you might say, right? But I've still not answered the most important question this morning, and perhaps for any morning. Christ alone, what? See, the fundamental problem with humanity, with each and every single human being that has ever lived, is separation from God, creator of the universe, As a result of our own sin. And sin is, by definition, a rejection of God. It is a severing of ourselves from God. It's detaching ourselves from God, who is the source of all good and turning absolutely anywhere else looking for satisfaction. Sin cannot result in anything but separation from God. And so we're a little like an AM, FM radio. It doesn't matter how many features a radio has, that radio has, how nice the speakers are, how great the quality of the sound. If that radio is not turned or not tuned to an appropriate wavelength, if it's not tuned to an appropriate frequency, that beautiful, feature-laden, expensive radio will sound nothing but static. And when people, when sinners, are separated from God, nothing, no number of features or gadgets or gizmos can silence that static. Our souls long to be reconciled to their maker. Our hearts long to exist in harmony with the Lord. Christ alone, what then? Christ alone can restore us to God. Christ alone can reconcile us to the Father. Christ and Christ alone saves sinners. 500 years ago, this notion, solus Christus, dealt with the sufficiency of Christ. That's, has Jesus Christ accomplished everything necessary for salvation? Has Christ both satisfied the justice of God to save us from death 
and granted us the holiness, granted us the purity necessary to enter into God's presence and live. Is it necessary to add something to Jesus Christ's death on the cross? This was the question faced by the reformers. Reformers, Roman Catholic doctrine held that baptism and penance, baptism and confession of sins in a, in a somewhat strict sense, were absolutely necessary in order to be saved. Baptism cleansed an individual from sins committed before saving faith, and penance or confession cleansed an individual from sins committed after the washing of baptism. And implicit in this is that Christ's work is not enough, that we must take steps to actively apply what he has done to ourselves, that we need to assist Christ in saving ourselves. And this may seem silly to you. Of course you don't believe this, but you may be thoroughly uh, Protestant in your rejection of baptism and confession and penance as earning yourself salvation from your sins. But how often do we attempt to add our own good works to the completed work of Christ? How often do we attempt to add our own generosity, our own kindness towards others, our own missionary trips or financial support or, or social activism or spiritual disciplines to the completed work of Christ and unwittingly, ignorantly dishonor him, suggesting that his death was not and is not enough? Let's turn our attention once again to the thieves on the cross. When Jesus says in verse 43, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What has the thief done? What has this man offered to Christ? There's no baptism. There's no missionary trip. There's no feeding the hungry or clothing the poor. There are not spiritual disciplines or displays of personal piety. This man is stuck. He literally can't move his arms or legs. His body is slowly fading away the torturous death of crucifixion. He is breathing his last breaths. What has this man offered to Christ? Nothing. Nothing. This, this poor man could do absolutely nothing to save himself. This poor man hanging on the cross next to Jesus could do nothing to help his own cause. Yet Jesus Christ says that he will be with him in paradise. His soul is safe and secure and will be with the Lord that very day and forevermore. Here we see the truth of Christ alone on display. Jesus Christ is mighty enough to save sinners from the deepest depths, from the brink of hell. Sinners who have nothing good to their name. Sinners who have nothing to offer but their own filth and neediness. Remember, remember earlier this morning when I said biblical Christianity can make you feel good. Well, here it is. My point, my intention wasn't for you to look at the thieves forever. But for you, as we consider the thieves, to see the power and the mercy that is capable of saving such a horrible human being. That if Christ was enough for that violent criminal on the cross, then Christ is enough for you and for me. That there is hope for every sinner, no matter how wretched. That the death of Christ is sufficient to cover your sins. And at this point, I'd like to make a comparison of a different sort. Because the motto Christ alone has historically been about the sufficiency of Jesus' work, which we have talked about so far this morning. But today, we face another challenge, a new challenge. And the new challenge, that new question, is not whether or not the death of Jesus is enough. But if it's exclusive, 
Is Jesus Christ truly alone the only way to God? So when we read a verse like John 14, 6, very well known, and when Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Was he leaving the door open for men and women, for boys and girls to approach God in any other way? Is heaven the summit of life's mountain with countless ways of reaching the top? Will you reach heaven as long as you've done more good than bad over the course of your life? Or will you enter heaven because you were zealous for God, passionate for God, even if that God was the false God of a false religion? Perhaps, perhaps you've heard the parable of the blind men and an elephant. Each of the men, each of these blind men, they feel a different part of the elephant, and so they believe that the whole elephant is only like their own experience. One blind man feels the elephant's trunk and so believes that the whole elephant is like a snake. Another blind man feels one of the elephant's legs and so believes that the whole elephant is like a tree. Another feels the tail that's like a rope. Another feels the side of the elephant that's like a wall or a building. And as the blind men grope in the darkness evaluating the elephant, they are all partly right, but all also wrong. This is how our culture would like to think, us to think about Christianity. This is how our culture likes to think about just about everything. That all people are blind. And Christians have only grasped on to one aspect of God. And because of this, it's ignorant or, or arrogant to claim that Christ alone is the only way to God. It's intolerant even. And this fairly good argument, this compelling argument, is good if not for one very, very important fact. Yes, we once were blind, but Christ has opened our eyes. Christ, the light of the world, according to John 8.12. Christ, the word made flesh, according to John 1.14. Christ, the mediator between God and man, according to 1 Timothy 2.5. Christ, who is one with the Father, John 10.30. Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. That's Colossians 2.9. And Christ, the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. This Christ, he has come, and he has come opening our eyes. And we have seen him. The question then is, have you seen the Lord? For the last time this morning, I want to turn our attention back to the thieves. One man hung on Christ's right, another on his left. The thieves witnessed the people cast lots, that's rolled something like rolling dice, to divide his clothes. They had such disdain for Jesus. They thought so little of his dignity that they were more concerned about his clothes not being wasted. The thieves witnessed the Jewish rulers mock Jesus, saying, Save yourself, God's chosen one. The thieves witnessed the Roman guards mock Jesus as well, saying, Save yourself, King of the Jews. The thieves saw the sign hanging above our Lord's head that mockingly referred to him as the same, King of the Jews. The thieves saw a man who was undoubtedly feeling the same weakness they were feeling. The agonizing, the excruciating pain, the heavy breathing, the rough wood scraping against their shredded backs and arms and legs. The thieves saw the blood trickling down Jesus' face from the crown of thorns that had been pressed into his head. They had seen Christ hated and deserted by his own. Yet, as one thief joins in to disparaging Jesus, the other recognizes him as a king. And he says, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. There was nothing kingly about Christ in the hours he hung on the cross. There was no majesty. There was no throne. There was no mob of supporters. There were no signs of power whatsoever. This remarkable thief had only seen Christ in weakness, in pain, in agony, on the verge of death. Yet he had the faith to say to Jesus, remember me when you become king. If ever there was an example of the grace of God, it's here. If ever there was an example of faith, it's here. If ever there was an example of the power of Christ to save sinners, it's here. Amongst the crowds crying out for Jesus to be crucified, amongst the jeers and the taunts and the mocking, God graciously opened the eyes of this one man to see the truth. And so by the grace of God alone, this man's faith alone in Christ alone saved his soul and gave him new life, even as his own was coming to its end. Christ and Christ alone is capable of saving sinners. The dying thief could offer Jesus Christ nothing. But Christ's power was more than enough to save his soul. The dying thief asked simply to be remembered by the king when he came into his kingdom. It was by grace he saw the majesty of Christ on the cross. By faith he asked to be remembered by the king. And Christ, the one true king, and Christ, the final sacrifice, was alone capable of saving him. And all of those things are offered to us this morning. The majesty of Christ on the cross by grace. Faith alone in Jesus Christ to save us. And Christ and his completed work of dying for our sins to save us. Jesus doesn't need your help or anybody else's to save you. Biblical Christianity does offer comfort. That should make you feel good. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, um, thank you for the bravery and courage of Christians who have come long, long before us to stand in the face of injustice, to stand in the face of systems that they saw were wrong according to your word, and to uh, risk their lives, risk everything um, that we might know you 500 years later as, as the Bible would teach us. God, my prayer is that this word this morning would give us hope that as we look to the cross, we see those sinners that when we look in the mirror, we sometimes see the same. Um, but God, we know, we know that there's nothing we can do or need to do to be saved by you. That in your love and your kindness and your mercy, you came down knowing the cross was your end and you died to save us from our sins. Thank you for that gift, and thank you that it doesn't end there, but, but ends in a resurrection and a coming kingdom where all things will be made right. Um, it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.